Welcome to the Substack Podcast, where we have conversations with great writers who have earned their independence. I'm Chris Best. I'm here with Nathan Bashaw and the genius Hamish McKenzie, who has had an amazing conversation this week. Hamish, who did you talk to? This week I spoke to Matt Taibbi, who's a contributing editor at the Rolling Stone, and in fact holds the position there that was once held by the great Hunter S. Thompson. Ah, what position is that? He's like the national affairs editor or something like that. I'm not sure what the exact title is, but he basically has pretty free reign to go and cover what interests him at depth and in this almost gonzo style where there's a lot of uh, looseness of the language or maybe it's tightly used language, but very colorfully done. Ah, interesting. What kind of stuff does he write about? Well, he covers a lot of things. He was very influential in covering the financial crisis and the fallout from that. He's written a lot about America's use of drones to kill people it wants dead. And he's covered a lot of the Trump stuff, which I think he might be getting a little wary of. We, we discussed that in the interview. He wrote a great book about covering the presidential campaign in 2016, and it's called Insane Clown President. Hmm. Interesting. So what, uh, what's, what's Matt Taibbi's background? Like what's kind of his, his CV, so to speak? Well, he's made his name in the U.S. in the last 10 years with this political writing for the Rolling Stone. But before that, he had kind of a checkered past at an exile, uh, sorry, an expat newspaper in Moscow that he co-edited. It was called The Exile. And they did some really extreme stuff, a lot of stuff in the name of satire that uh, Matt now regrets. And we talk about that in the podcast at length. Um, and one thing in particular recently uh, that came up was uh, the way him and his co-editor wrote about women. Matt really regrets that. It got him into a lot of trouble, and he was branded a misogynist, and it's really hurt his career quite a lot. In fact, he says in the interview he's not even sure that he can get another book deal. But yeah, it's complicated territory, uncomfortable, and it's uh, worth listening to the interview, I think, uh, for that section alone. But there's lots of other good stuff. Yeah, what are the other good things? Well, Matt has very insightful and thoughtful views on the state of the media today and what the attention economy has done to journalism and how that's affecting society. But more uh, important to Substack, I think, or not just as important to us, but more directly relevant to Substack, he's started a serial novel uh, called The Business Secrets of Drug Dealing which is uh, kind of about the business secrets of drug dealing. It's written in conjunction with this, this anonymous former drug dealer, but it's also about things like the corporatization of cannabis and racial justice in America. Interesting. Well, I can't wait to hear it. Let's roll the tape. Welcome to the Substack Podcast, Matt. Thanks for having me on. We were just in halfway through a conversation where we were talking about... Um, the media these days being so different and people's consumption patterns being so different because uh, they're constantly pulling refresh on their Twitter feed. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's amazing. I mean, I, I, I grew up in the media. My childhood was literally the movie Anchorman. You know, my father was a TV reporter and uh, all the bad facial hair and bad suits and everything. So I've, I've spent, you know, nearly 50 years now watching how the media works and... Um, the the patterns of behavior are so drastically different on both sides you know both 
both on the reporter side and the on, and on the consumer side. And you know, back in the day, I think there was a huge difference because people they read the newspaper, they sat down, they read it from beginning to end. If you know, maybe on a Sunday that was a thing that people did. They, they said, "I'm going to read the news." Right? Um, it was a, the whole concept was it was a process that ended, you know, uh, and now. We don't have that now. You don't have a broadcast that you sit through or a newspaper that you've, you know, read from page one to 24. You're just constantly checking and checking and checking. And it's this anxiety generating uh, behavior pattern that pushes people to places that they've never been before, I think, in the media, like your ability to, to generate patriotic outrage or, or other feelings is 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 so enhanced now in this environment. So, so what do you think is the um, effect on society? Maybe this is a big question to go in at this sure, point. I mean, but of this anxiety-inducing um, media sphere we live in now, I think it's impossible to quantify the the impact of it. I mean, we've already seen some people try to quantify uh, how depressed, you know, the constant exposure to the internet. Uh, makes people, there was a famous study that the University of, I believe it was Pitt, uh, did in the 90s that found that people who were online were just far more depressed than people who weren't. Now they've, that professor has subsequently been hired by Facebook and they've, he subsequently changed his mind um, (laughs) about about that effect. Uh, But um, I think the main, the main impact that you see is, first of all, a lot of what people do uh, on social media, especially, is you know it's basically an addictive behavior. You're 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 not really thinking. You're on there in search of um, you know a dopamine rush from from an ex- an expected kind of content rush, right? And the entire news media is generated uh, with the idea of delivering those rushes to people. It's not about, you know, when, when, when I, when I was a young pup, you know, coming up in the business, the, the whole idea was about, you know, doing good stories. You know, we, we had, we had different ideas about what was and wasn't a story. Now the whole idea is, you know, commercially is you find a demographic and you capture it by continually delivering to this group news that you know is going to validate their existing opinions about things. And that's a, that's a really different kind of activity than kind of trying to tell everybody, you know, a, a subset of everyone, what you think that, you know, the news of the day is. It's just different. And journalists are not even necessarily the best at that. In fact, we've seen in recent years that people who are kind of against the media are really effective at it. Oh, yeah, of I'm talking about you know the alt, the alt right, so called, or um, yeah, other other people who have means other than informing the public as uh, as their chief motivation. Well, no, of, of course, because part of that process is is turning off your ability to be objective. I mean, if you, you it's funny. I remember talking to uh, you know Jank from uh, the Young Turks about this. And he actually mentions this in a movie called um, All Governments Lie, uh, where, you know, there's a moment for journalists where, you know, you'll build up an audience, but there's going to come a moment in time where you have to say something that you know that they're not going to like. And with the Young Turks, they had that with, 
after Obama got elected, there was all this enthusiasm for Obama, and then there were things that happened in the Obama administration that you know weren't so positive. You know, whether it was the response to the financial crisis or whatever, or the drone war, and they had to you know ethically do those stories, knowing that it was going to affect their numbers and that it was going to make it go down. Um, but you know, there are other people who just don't have those scruples, right? And and that's you know sort of definitionally part of what's wrong with the modern media is that the people who thrive are the people who decide in advance that they're not going to worry about that, right? So if we come across news that we know is going to offend our audience, we'll just ignore it and move on to the next thing. And I mean, that was sort of the innovation of Fox News was it's, people have the wrong idea about Fox. It's not that they're making up the news. It's not that they're lying. They're just carefully sifting through and picking stories uh, that they know are going to reinforce the existing opinions of their aging, angry audience, you know? And and the people who are best at that are the people who have the least scruples. And how has that affected how you approach your work? Because you try to, like, yeah, try to be pretty consistent, writing from the Rolling Stone most of the time, covering po- politics. Like, how have you survived? You know, I, I've had a, you know, I'll, I'll be completely frank. I've had a, a lot of difficulty in the last couple of years, I think, because of um, because of this environment. Uh, you know, the my particular niche was always a couple of things. Number one, I did subjects that were um, sort of arcane and difficult. You know, uh, I, I really liked taking something that was hard to explain and kind of blowing it out in five or six thousand words and making it accessible for ordinary people like um you know how how credit default swaps work or something like that it sounds boring try to make it interesting and the other thing was you know using humor right uh which can appeal to people across the political spectrum right and um those were two things that i kind of leaned on to to paper over the basic problem, which was that I, I couldn't consistently just feed people what I knew they wanted politically. You know, like when I started doing the finance stuff, and I, I ran into the same problem that the Young Turks did. You know, I, I had covered Barack Obama, I liked him, uh, I'd written very positive things about him, but pretty quickly I ran into the problem of, well, he invited all these Citigroup executives into his government and they're, what they're doing in response to the crisis sucks. And how can I not talk about that? Right. So I, I got to talk about that. Ten years ago, that really wasn't as much of a problem. Audiences really weren't so um, they were more forgiving about that. And I think now, you know, because of Trump, because the landscape is so divided right now, you just everyone, there's this tremendous pressure to pick a side and and just hammer your side one way or the other people approach the news the way they approach rooting for football teams and um that's tough it's it's a it's a tough thing so i'm wondering if that has caused your overall audience to suffer a bit i don't know maybe it has but also it seems like you have a harder core uh, group of supporters now or followers of your work is, is that accurate i think that's probably true I, I i definitely detect there's a um an undercurrent out there of people who are kind of frustrated with the the landscape and uh i mean i i've talked to people in the business right who 
years ago started to notice that man a lot a lot of the things that we used to watch on television are just unwatchable now because it's just predictable i mean like you turn on msnbc news now you you pretty much know what you're gonna get you know and yeah. that's intellectually just uninteresting what regardless of whether it's correct or not yeah. it's just not mentally challenging and i think i think that even though the bulk of audiences are going one way or the other. There's a growing subset of people out there who are frustrated that they don't have, um, you know, that, that their field of choices has been narrowed in that way. I think that the meat, the media used to just be more, um, you know, mixed in terms of what you could find. There were little pockets of things here and there, and and now it's just it, there's less of that. Which is crazy because you think that. Well, the promise of social media was that right. it would open up all these avenues and anyone of any interest could uh, find their place. Yeah, th- th- that was sort of the original you know, promise of the internet, right? It was that we were going to have this explosion of like diverse ideas and viewpoints and, and, uh, and, cr- and creativity. And a lot of that happened, obviously. We had these unbelievable innovations. And you know, just, just in our business and in journalism, we had... Uh, you know, incredible new ideas, everything from podcasting to, uh, you know, people who uh, found new ways to deliver breaking news via via social media to, um, you know, to sort of renegade television shows. I mean, that was impossible before. You needed a big corporate sponsor. You needed a broadcaster. You needed an FCC license. You couldn't do that before. Now you can. But as we've gotten farther into the future, what we've seen is that social media, at least in my experience, is turning into a mechanism for kind of social conformity, right? Uh, People uh, are increasingly afraid of being kind of outed as a wrong thinker on the internet. And so there's a lot of sort of tribal behavior that goes on. People attacking groups on Twitter, right? Um, And they, you know, all the things that people like George Orwell warned about, you know, the kind of groupthink that happens, um, we're starting to see that more and more. And I think some of that has to do with just the format of, of these platforms. It just, you know, inherently encourages that kind of behavior. I'm going to mention it now because it's of a theme and we have to bring it up. Everyone who's listening will wonder, like, where you are now with this, given uh, what happened to you last year. So, um you became the subject of uh, discussion, right? Yeah, suggesting that uh, you are a misogynist, and uh, because of some stuff you'd written in your past or been associated with uh, in your past in a book that you co-wrote with uh, Mark Ames from the Exile. I want to talk about the Exile, but let's shorthand it as a as a renegade. Um, uh, journalistic entity. Yeah, in, it in was it was an experiment, and yeah, being yeah, go ahead. An experiment that mixed uh, satire with um, some really amazing reporting um, and some outrageous writing that was deliberately outrageous, um, and it's been resurfaced. Uh, some of those excerpts have been resurfaced um, in 2017, late 2017, and used as evidence to suggest that you're. Um, a misogynist and worse right and it came t- at a time when you were uh, about to start promoting this book called i can't breathe which is about uh, pre- uh, police brutality in the united states and its effect uh, and its role in the the death of eric garner 
um, who was a cigarette salesman, among other things, in Staten Island. Um, and it ended up in this campaign against you, which was largely driven on social media, but filtered into the mainstream press as well. <clears throat> and um, can you just tell me what it was like to be at the center of that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was hard. It's the worst experience I've ever been through. I mean, I haven't, I haven't been through a real tragedy, you know, like losing, you know, losing a child or anything like that. But, you know, this was a night, it's a nightmare uh, to be accused of, you know, essentially what happened was uh, somebody took, some people took some things that Mark had written in his chapter of the exile. Uh, the exile book from the year 2000. Book. Yeah. And, um, and sort of took it literally uh, and used it as an argument that we had sexually harassed our employees uh, and forced them to, you know, do all kinds of terrible things in the office. Um, there, I have to back up and explain what the exile was. The exile was a was a, a, a racy club guide that was going on uh, in the most. Uh, you know, bizarre, crazy, violent atmosphere in the world. I mean, 1990s Moscow was the Wild West times a thousand. There were, you know, deaths, murders, you know, prostitutes everywhere. So we had a very hardcore audience. And one of them was me in, um, at Otago University. Oh, really? Yeah, John Dolan, who oh, you worked okay. with, was my writing teacher. Really? He became the war nerd, or was the war nerd. Yeah, that's, the that's right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, John's brilliant. Yeah, he's uh, an incredibly funny writer, too. Wow, I didn't know that. So yeah, right, you're one yeah. of his students. I okay. thought I'd, I'd spring that on you here yeah. on the podcast. To wow. Throw <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. No. So, so you're at the exile, and some of this, uh, so this racy was, stuff got yeah, written. Yeah, this was pre, this was pre, pre-Dolan. Uh, it, was, it was Mark and I. Uh, we we didn't really know each other. We got together, and the the, co- the basic idea of the exile was that we wanted like the, the the title of the paper was supposed to be a, a riff on this this type that we were intimately familiar with uh, in the expat community. The, you know, an, an exile. The typical Amer- expatriate who was there at the time was. Sort of like a, a, an oversexed conquistador, you know. There were all these sort of Western political advisors and businessmen who would come over, uh, and they would pretend to be friends to Russia by day, and you know, bringing democracy and all that. And really, what they were doing is they were just making you know ass loads of money and getting laid by night, and you know, frequenting brothels uh, that were incidentally our core advertising base. Um, <laughs> And so the shtick of the exile was that it was a mag- it was a magazine for those people, right? It was it was the shtick was that yeah, yeah it was it was kind of tongue in cheek. It's supposed to be this over the top representation of what you know the, what the ugly American was all about, and we were sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly, uh, or I'm sorry, sometimes openly and sometimes not so openly targeting our audience, like satirizing our audience. You know, we would, one of the early things that, that Mark did, Mark came up with this columnist he called Johnny Chen. And Chen, the, the legend was that he was a USAID uh, contractor um, who was this sort of Asian nerd by day and then by night he was basically like 
you know, Mr. Hyde, he was out there molesting women and doing drugs and everything like that. And the joke was everybody in the community thought this was a real person because so many people were act acting like this. And there, we, we drummed up a lot of curiosity uh, uh, just surrounding the paper just because people were playing this guessing game, like who is Johnny Chan really, right? So that's like sort of classic satire. And then the... What happened was we got sort of mission creep and, you know, Mark, Mark and I started to become personalities in the paper where, you know, we, we represented personally the ethos of, of that, you know, we, we, we sort of posed as ugly Americans in public. Um, posed? Well, in my case, there was definitely more, more of a pose. In reality, you know, I, I had met... Um, Early in the Excel experience, like I, I met uh, we had a, a girl who worked for us at the at the Excel. As a matter of fact, and we, this, this is the fun, this is the crazy part. We ended up living together for seven years, but I, I insisted that we not work together before we we um, we even go on a date. So why? Well. We, because I thought it would be unethical, actually. You Even, thought it would be a bad look to be dating someone you worked with. Yeah, who was technically, you know, I, you know, whose boss I was. Or I was, I, I would have been the boss in that situation. Even though it was an unpaid internship that was only for a couple of months, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so she quit. We ended up living together for for seven years. Uh, and so I was living in this sort of monogamous. Uh, you know, relationship the entire time, and yet we were sort of posed, posing as these sort of oversexed, you know, frequenters of brothels and everything like that. Now, very rarely was I really even part of this. I mean, my role at the paper was to be kind of the straight man. I, you know, most of my bylines were actual journalistic reports, not much different from what I do now. But because of that, of the paper's image, we were you know, and we got kind of lost in the shtick for sure. You know, we, we, we sometimes, uh, went too far. Um, but basically the whole idea was we were pretending to be, uh, these sort of renegade rogue, disgusting creeps. Um, and, uh, you know, there were passages in the book where Mark talks about how, you know, we were forcing girls to give us blowjobs in the office and everything. Now this is, this was completely ridiculous. It didn't happen. And as soon as any uh, a reporter took the time out to actually ask the women right. involved, they, they, they found that out. But I, I would just like to make that point. There's a lot of news stories that went out uh, about whether or not Matt Taibbi was a misogynist at the time of this coming to light in, in late last year. But there's one story that actually called up and asked people who worked with Matt if this was a true representation of what it was like to work with Matt. And the, or the women said no. Right. Actually, yeah. it was the opposite. I dated him for seven years, and he asked, uh, he, he asked me not to work at the company because of uh, the ethical side of it. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, it was disappointing. I mean, I think... One, and this gets, gets to the whole question of how, to, how does the media work these days? Well, you know, people took the 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 book and they took the passage and they wrote stories about it and you know it wasn't just happening around the same time that my book came out it literally came you know the, the guardian did a piece that like came out like on the day that my book was released so it was it was devastating you know it's 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 completely 
screwed my career in, in a lot of ways. I mean, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to, you know, have a book publisher again because of, because of this, uh, because of the fiasco that happened with that book. But, um, but you know, it, it's very difficult. And then, you know, the, the, the working back of trying to get reporters to actually call up and, you know, do a little bit of work on finding out what actually happened. Uh, I was very fortunate that one, one reporter did, uh, and that led to some corrections, um, you know, uh, in, in some of the prominent newspapers. But the problem with the current environment is, um, you know, once the genie's out of the bottle, it just doesn't get back in. And once something's on the Internet, it's like... Um, you know, it's like a social disease. It just never goes away. You know, so it was a it was a very it was a devastating experience. It's also a very you know chastening experience. I think one of the things that happens when you when you go through something like that. I used to be very very fearless about what I would say in public, uh, and now you know I I have second thoughts about even the most cautious statements you know that I'll that I'll make. Um, which is not a good thing, you know. I think I think there's a there's a chilling effect on speech that's going on kind of all over the place because people are afraid that they're going to say something that you know ten years from now is going to pop up and bite them back, you know. Bite them yeah, back. just to, I mean, in the interest of balance, and you've issued two apologies, and I assume those apologies came from a, a good place. Like sure. you, some of those things you you did write and were affiliated with back in those days. There was some objectionable, objectionable shit. Yeah, no, we, we, I, I have tremendous regrets about a lot of the stuff in the paper, but um, I think one of the things that that people didn't understand about that um, is that the thing that I regretted most about the exile is is that we had this ethos that because we were small and underfunded and alternative and didn't have didn't have these huge corporate backers that in order to make an uh, an impact we had the saying there we had to quote make it hurt right so kind of cruelty was part part of the act of the exile we would pick a target and we wouldn't just hit them we would hit them over and over and over again until they screamed uncle you know that was that was kind of the idea um you know ironically uh this you know that's kind of a feature of current media and, I, and I, i've thought about that a lot that this was sort of the chicken sump coming home to roost but you know one of the things that we did in the in in moscow is it was a small enough community that um you know sort of being ripped in one of the two media outlets that serve the english-speaking community in, uh, in moscow uh was painful for people and and you know we could be we could be very nasty, you know, cruel physical descriptions, and um, you know, we'd have pictures of people that would be, you know, not so flattering. Or you know, we did this thing where we threw a cream pie made out of horse sperm in a guy's face after winning the. Our, not just a guy. It's the the bureau chief for the New York Times. Yeah, right? the bureau chief for the New York Times, and we put that on the cover, and you know, that was totally puerile. And 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 what happened. Over the years, is that uh, you know I I started to um, have tremendous uh, reservations and misgivings about that approach, um, and you know but we were lost in it. And the exile was was a hit, you know, at the beginning, and it was it was fun and uh, at at the start, 
Um, but I, but I think, you know, we kind of, we kind of lost the joke pretty early. Uh, it was, it was funny at the beginning and then it turned just mean. Um, and I, re I, I definitely regret that. I mean, I, I look back on, on the things that I, I wrote at that time and I, and I cringe, you know. Is it because the, is it because you've changed or the world cha world has changed? No, I think, I think. I think it's much more that I was immature and, and young and, you know, trying to, you know, I think there's a temptation, especially for for young writers to try too hard to get attention. You know, um, the, the best work that I, would, I did back then was when I was just trying to convey something simple. Like, you know, I would tell a story about um, what it was like to work in a collective farm where people were getting their livestock stolen, right? So I would spend a night, you know, with night watchmen or something, and I would just write that up um, and didn't sex it up or anything. You would just do it. And that was, that was how I learned what reporting really was. On the flip side, but I thought the stuff that was, that was going to get the most attention was were these goofy pranks that we were doing in the, in the exile, and a lot of them were, were very nasty. Um, we... We were we, we tried to model ourselves a, a lot after Spy Magazine, uh, but the the twist on it was that it was meaner than Spy. You know, like we we, we tried to, to kind of dial that up, and um, it it was just it was just not a good approach. It was you know it didn't even come from a place of meanness really. It was really it really came from a place of we're trying to be we're trying to be funny and effective and do satire and. Uh, and I look back on it now, a lot of it now, and it's just not funny. <laughs> you know, it didn't, it, it didn't age well. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a learning experience. Um, and yeah, of course I have regrets about it. I mean, every, every writer has regrets about the terrible things that they do when they're, mm -hmm. when they're young. I think it's unfortunate that this happened uh, because you have built a strong career, especially over the last decade being a voice for the disenfranchised and um, pointing out flaws in the financial system, for instance, that were not properly appreciated by people at the time. And a lot of this stuff is happening again, except it's been ignored because right. Right. we're being distracted by Trump. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think even back then, the sort of things that I got in the most trouble for, um, I, you know, I had an argument with, a reporter from the Baltimore Sun back then um, named Kathy Lally and uh, really it was sort of an ongoing squabble that I had with her and a, a Washington Post reporter and some other reporters in town and the, the anger there was because I was feeling self-righteous about all, I was covering all these incredibly tragic things that were going on in the country. I mean, there were sort of millions of premature deaths because of the economic changes there. I had, I remember I had come back from covering this coal miners strike and I had seen a, a, a family of coal miners try to feed themselves with a single boiled egg at night uh, and a piece of cucumber uh, because that's what the mine was giving them. And, and then I would come home and I would see reports from my colleagues talking about how Russia has this thriving middle class and, you know, they're doing so well under capitalism when, um, you know, and I, I, the anger, you know, I went after those people personally 
um, thinking that their wrongness justified really any kind of abuse that I could cook up in print. Um, and I was wrong about that. But, you know, the, the place that it came from was, you know, I've, I've always tried to look at news stories from the point of view of people who aren't represented in the press. And most news stories really aren't told uh, from the point of view of, you know, sort of disenfranchised people. In fact, they're not even supposed to be on TV. I mean, if you, if you look on television, you just don't see poor people because advertisers know they're depressing. So forget about telling their stories. You just, they're, they're, they're not, they don't even exist in, in, the, in the media. So I've, I've always tried to do that. Um, but, you know, sometimes it's more successful than others. What year did you ultimately come back to the U.S. after the exile? I think I came back in uh, early 2002. So I was there. I was at the exile for five years, basically. Um, and then the first thing you did was try to start up this new operation called the Buffalo Beast. God right. knows why you went to Buffalo of all places. Like, yeah, you... I'm the first person in history to move to Buffalo for the weather. <laughs> uh, you just wanted to be reminded of Russia? No, I actually... Uh, Buffalo, we th- we thought was we had a we had somebody there who was sort of p- promising to help us put out a newspaper. Um, turned out uh, we would end up having to basically do it ourselves. But um, I I left Russia not because I was having a bad time there or didn't love the country, but I, mainly because I was my seasonal affective disorder from the darkness in the winter was kicking in and I just couldn't do it anymore. That and the fact that doing journalism in Russia involves so much drinking that I just, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't take it anymore. So Buffalo was an option. And so I moved there literally because it had better weather than Moscow. Like that was, that was mainly the reason. Lots of places have better weather than Moscow. Right. Yeah. Moscow. No, I picked the one, the one place on earth that maybe only had slightly better Marginally weather. Better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, so Buffalo Beast didn't work out, and somehow you ended up at Rolling Stone. Well, right. Rolling Stone had done a story on the exile uh, a couple of years before. And um, as a result of that, the editor uh, at the time, Will Dana, um, had always sort of kept tabs on me. Uh, And when he heard that I was back in the States, he called me up. I think it was in 2003 and basically said, would you like to write some campaign stuff for us? And, you know, I grew up reading Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail and it's Rolling Stone and basically, uh, you know, it was, it was a dream situation. It didn't do so well at first, but um, fairly soon uh, it, it all worked out and they gave me a job and I've been there ever since. Uh, in this position, it's kind of like, it's sort of like the Dread Pirate Roberts of journalism, right? Like, you know, that, that job's been passed down from Hunter to Cameron Crowe to P.J. O'Rourke to Bill Grider and then, you know, really to me. And, and um, it's, it's such a cool, it, it's been a really cool experience. I think one thing that people will always quote in bios about you is that you famously described Goldman Sachs as a vampire squid sucking on the face of humanity. Yeah, yeah. Is that, is that what launched your uh, your? Is that what launched you into the stratosphere of the American media consciousness? Yeah, probably. I mean, the the funny thing was um, when two thousand and eight happened. So I was basically known really as a political humorist until that time. Like my job was really to 
you know, do campaign coverage. I would, I traveled around and covered people like uh, John McCain, you know, that year in the campaign, Sarah Palin. Um, then the crash happens, and they give me the assignment to do a, to do a single story on what happened in in the financial crash. And did you have any idea about what I, happened? I that knew happened? I knew absolutely nothing about finance I couldn't even balance my checkbook and that was the problem is that um, I had to start from scratch so I did this uh, you know I, I called up a whole bunch of people and I think because I was so far out of the consciousness of like the financial press I came at it from a completely different angle and what I ended up doing was something that really hadn't been done before which was let's translate you know sort of finance speak for people who who don't follow finance, right? Let's tell them what it actually is. And um, it was a really complicated and interesting job, but also we found out at that time there was so much anger and resentment about what happened that this kind of new approach to explaining what had happened in 2008, it just struck a chord with people. And they, as a result, one assignment turned into eight years worth of assignments. Um, And I think that that initial story about Goldman Sachs, which was, which was really, we took one investment bank and used it as a metaphor to explain what investment banks do in general and what they had done uh, leading up to the crash. Um, you know, that was really, I think it was eye-opening for a lot of people. And, um, and you know, it, it sort of launched me down this road of, of doing really, really super interesting work, which was, let's take these really ingenious, difficult, dry capers and, turn, and make it fodder for ordinary people. What, was that the golden time for your work at the gold, at the Rolling Stone? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that you don't continue to perform at a very high level, but this was like uh, like now you've you've mentioned the sort of disenchantment of, of everything being Trump, Trump, Trump all the time. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that we the magazines had ups and downs, obviously, and I've had ups ups, ups and downs at the magazine. I mean, I think even. Even in 2016, in the early stages of the election, I had a lot of fun covering that election. I mean, I think, you know, doing, doing that kind of sort of fear and loathing style campaign writing was a lot of fun. That stuff turned into a book, you know, Insane Clown President. Um, the sort of early assignment of, of not just writing about Trump's rise, but, you know, the, the, more, the really actually important story about Donald Trump is why is this happening, right? Like, what's the nature of, of this phenomenon? That was a lot of fun. That was really interesting. Also, it was it was twisted and funny in a way that you know, finance isn't always. I mean, you have to really, really work hard to to with the storytelling aspects of that to sell that to audiences. You don't have to do that with Trump. I mean, Trump Trump's the the that part of it's already there. So that 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 was really fun. I I, I really enjoyed that. Was your um, part stopped becoming fun to cover Trump in that way? Yeah, definitely. I think I think as soon. I mean, I can't really put my finger on it, but I would say sometime after he became the nominee, um, something changed in the business. I mean, I, I look back. Um, there was a, a a column in the New York Times. Uh, I forget the name of the writer. I think it might have been Jim Rutland. Um, And he wrote a piece about how journalists have... Trump was so bad that reporters needed to fundamentally rethink how we did our jobs, right? We, We had to 
we had to not worry so much about what was true, but we had to worry about being uh, true to the judgment of history, right? Which is a, a radical difference. I mean, yeah, so what one guy says it, but actually what happened is pretty much the whole business bought into the idea um, that uh, a, rather than being sort of dispassionate uh, observers of what was going on, um, we had to now be participants and, and to try to prevent uh, you know Trump from happening. Now I, I completely sympathize with that with that idea, but what always ends up happening with reporters when we sort of jump on a political bandwagon um, is that we kind of like lose our sense of mission and uh, pretty quickly we find ourselves unable to do that difficult thing of you know telling the bad news about your side, right? Uh, and that's why reporters have to, we have to make sometimes very difficult choices to not, not join in, you know, we always have to stay a step removed. And, um, what's your view of the journalistic mission? Well, I, uh, you know, I, I think I believe in kind of the, I'm a sort of a free press purist, right? I think. Our job is to just sort of tell people what happens and be as accurate, you know, and clear as possible. And then it's up to everybody else to do what they will with it. All right. So we have to be true uh, as we see it. We have to call things exactly as we see it with all the warts, you know, in all directions. Um, And then people make their own decisions. I think what's happened since Trump is that. Uh, a lot of people in the press have lost faith in audiences, right? They don't believe, they don't have any confidence in the intelligence of their readers. So they, in addition to just telling the truth about Trump, which is bad enough, they'll, they'll, you know, shade things just ever so slightly or, or they won't, they'll leave out derogatory things about Democrats, or they'll say extra derogatory things about the Greens, or think you know they'll or they'll ping Trump for, for something that Obama also did. Right? Yeah, exactly. Like they, like like he invented X. You know, like I did a story about the, the the drone program, and you know everybody wanted to pin that on on Trump, even though it's that that's a textbook example of a bipartisan problem, right? Um, so. To me, that's just that's just not having any faith that that your audience will be able to sort things out. Like I, I don't trust you to make a, a, a rational decision, so I'm going to hide something from you, right? Um, I, you know, I think we should be the opposite. I think we should tell them absolutely everything that we see, uh, and um, you know, and let them figure it out. The other thing that 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 I also think um, is that reporters sometimes have like this difficult uh obligation to zig when everybody else is zagging right so if you see a thousand people all reporting in one direction um sometimes you have an obligation to kind of say well i'm going to go explore in this direction see we see what's happening and that will seem to people like you're just being contrarian for the sake of it um but that's really not what it is it's just it's it's an effort to try to sort of keep keep the press you know apart 
from the news, not being, we don't want to be in it, we want to be outside of it. So in order to do that, we have to, we have to kind of try to have this uh, separate mission. I don't know if I'm making any sense, but, but it's, um, you know, in this environment, it's just, it's very, very difficult. Um, you know, it's become a lot less fun to write about that. You wanted to, at some point, um, after several years of great success at the Rolling Stone, go and set up a publication mm-hmm. like that to do that, to, to exist outside the, the mainstream and like peer at the media as well. Um, it was going to be called Racket. It was going to be done as part of uh, Pierre Media's uh, first look um, media enterprise where he was given $250 million to uh, folks like uh, Glenn Greenwald and yourself. I'm not sure how much of that made, it, made its way into your own yeah, pocket. Yeah, that, that number got small pretty quick. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. and um, uh, you were there for seven months in total, I think. Uh, the publication didn't get launched. There was a big... Uh, drama I don't know why these things follow you Matt yeah uh, but um, Glenn Greenwald Jeremy Scahill Laura Poitras and John Cook uh, wrote and published this um, I don't want to it's not a farewell letter but they wrote this explanation that seems to be incredibly detailed and long for someone leaving a company uh, saying there was a different a difference in management styles which was the reason for your departure um which sounded like a bit of a euphemism for me. To me, yeah. Um, can you tell me about it, that experience and what went on behind the scenes? Well, it's a little different, difficult because I have an NDA there, so I can't really get into ev- everything. Um, I will. I, what I will say is, uh, we had an idea. My, you know, my idea again was basically to recreate Spy Magazine and to do it without the gratuitous meanness that you know that, that I thought we had done with the Exile, like. You know, just be be funny, be satirical, um, be uh, readable. You know, the, the the concept that we ended up having in the company was, you know, the Intercept was going to be the sort of hardcore nation style, um, you know, issues based reporting, and we were going to be the more commercial fun. Uh, project that you know was going to be uh, kind of like a sort of online satirical outlet like the onion but but a little different with it with the approach Um, and uh, we were what we should have done is just started working you know like I should have hired somebody like Alex Perrine and we should have just sat down and started writing stuff and putting it online instead um, I discovered that I'm a completely incompetent corporate manager, and I was the wrong, really the wrong person to try to, to try to run that organization. Uh, uh, and instead, we got caught up in all kinds of crazy things, building out this huge, um, you know, publication when it should have just been a couple of people writing funny stuff, and it didn't, that didn't happen. Um, how much do you regret that that didn't happen? Oh, I regret it a lot. I think it would have been great. It would have been a lot. It would have been a lot of fun. Um, you know, we had we had a lot of really talented, cool people there. Um, and it's hard to find a publication like this today. I mean, Gawker might have been the closest thing to it, and it doesn't exist either. Yeah, and Gawker's mission was again a little different. You know, like, um, it, you know, the the whole idea of. Spy magazine for people who do, who don't remember it because you have to be old to remember it now was 
the you know the way back in the day you had these two guys Graydon Carter and Kurt Anderson who were sort of vets of what used to be um, an important form of journalism in this country like the weekly shitty magazine right like Time and Newsweek and they were a particularly ridiculous form you know they they had all these goofy little boxes and they had incredible pretensions to importance and actually the material was incredibly simplistic and um, really insulted the intelligence of their readers and so what they did is they 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 just made a spoof of that of those magazines and they did it completely tongue-in-cheek and they even they even added it a little a little flourish by doing the reporting part of it better than they did you know and so we were going to do something like that. Like, it was going to be a mix of, of reporting, but, like, completely, um, you know, goofball uh, spoofs of people like Thomas Friedman, David Brooks, and all the craziness on social media. And, um, and that would have been really fun because there's really no, apart from The Onion, there's just no absurdist voice in American culture anymore. Um, which is kind of sad. I mean, it's the the the, the humor thing is, is sort of disappearing from this culture. Um, you know, maybe it's only temporary, but I don't know. But it it would it would have been a lot of fun to do for sure. Yeah, I'd love to see that publication, and maybe there's a way to like revive it in some other. Maybe someday it would it would be it would be fun. We had we had like all these uh, crazy ideas. Like uh, Alex came up with this thing that was hilarious, and we we actually. We had this working, you know, because Thomas Friedman um, is always talking about how, you know, the, the reason that capitalism works is because, you know, it inevitably finds uh, you know, great workers in India who can, who can do jobs for a fraction of the cost. And even though it might be painful for Americans, um, you know, uh, to see themselves undercut by foreign labor, it actually ultimately lifts up everybody in the end. You know, they get into the golden straitjacket and they become wealthy as part of this. So what we did is we found a factory that was willing to um, write 100 Thomas Friedman columns a day uh, <laughs> for a fraction of the price uh, that, that Friedman actually cost. And we actually ordered... Um, uh, early samples of it, and they were fantastic. Like they did Friedman better than we, like than Friedman did. We gave them some very vague instructions. You know, we we said things like, um, "Yeah, can you do can you do a column that you know supports uh, you know America's policy in Syria or something like that?" And it's got to be based on a conversation with a cab driver. Exactly. Yeah, there must be a cab driver in there, et cetera, et cetera. And and they just. They threw themselves into it, and they weren't even trying to be funny, but it was it was hilarious. How much you know? did you pay them? Oh, pennies. I mean, that was that was the. I mean, we, we we struggled morally with that. We actually actually, I think in the end, we ended up paying them more than than they even asked for. Um, you know, because it was Pierre Midiar's money. Uh, so, <laughs> um, but yeah, we were we were going to have a factory style punditry thing going on that was going to be really funny. Um, yeah, we had we had lots of really funny ideas that were they were going to be cool. So how was the conversation with the Rolling Stone when you went back? Uh, it was okay. You know, Rolling Stone has a long history of, of um, correspondents who've had freakouts uh, and have left and come, come back. Uh, obviously, the most famous is Hunter. Um, so 
my little drama there was nothing compared to some of the things they've gone through previously. And, um, you know, I had always gotten along really well with people at Rolling Stone. Uh, and I, I really only left because I would, the, the person who hired me was my former editor at Rolling Stone, Eric Bates. And, uh, so I was familiar with him. And then, um, you know, the idea, the opportunity to start this new... I wasn't going to be able to do that at Rolling Stone. Uh, so it was it was a combination of factors. And I think they were, you know, even though it was a little tense at the end there, it wasn't really hostile. And I came back with a pretty with a pretty good story for them. So that was another another aspect of it. So What was the story? Um, I did a story about a whistleblower for J.P. Morgan Chase. And um, it was all about how the government basically covered up this uh, evidence they had against um, you know, the, the bank and um, didn't proceed with a criminal case when they had a good one. So I went into the, to the, you know, to those details and had a nice little scoop and it was fun. Yeah. You know? I mean, that, the Rolling Stone, the, the, the people that I worked with there, they were, they're a great lineup of um, editors, so that was always great uh, to work with them. Cool. And one of the really interesting things, especially for us at Substack, that you're now doing kind of on the side, uh, among your many other uh, uh, stories and book projects, is uh, a serial novel yeah. uh, that you're charging subscriptions for, um, and it's called The Business Secrets of Drug Dealing. <laughs> and the subtitle is Adventures of... The Uncaptured Black Male. Yeah, Unidentified Black Male. Unidentified Black Male, yeah. I'll let you describe it. Like, what, is, what is this story about? So, um, about a year ago, somebody that I knew, I'm going to have to just say vaguely, in another capacity and had known for years... Um, it came out to me uh, in a over lunch that he had essentially been a high high level drug dealer for years. Uh, he only dealt weed. He had he had a whole series of rules. Um, he wouldn't sell anything that didn't grow out of the ground. He wouldn't sell meth. He wouldn't sell dope. He wouldn't. He only sold marijuana or mushrooms. Um, but mushrooms was in the beginning, and um, and he had this incredibly interesting story to tell about. You know, a, how how you become a dealer and what that's like, and he had a really interesting way of describing it. He had a very very unique voice too, um, and he wanted to tell his story, but he wanted to do it in a way that where he couldn't be interviewed, uh, identified, because he's never been arrested for a drug charge. So he's it's sort of a rare situation. Like most true crime books are written by people who've been caught, you know. Um, so this was, we had this idea that we were going to do like a how-to book, like how, how, to, how to deal drugs and not get caught. And, um, and it was also, I wanted to experiment with like a, a new kind of reporting. Um, because one of the things that I really, really like to do is I like to take somebody who has an interesting story and just download every single detail that I can from their heads and then try to recreate uh, whatever their interesting experiences from their point of view. It's, it's a, you know, I would say it's a kind of reporting that like, um, you know, in cold blood would be the, the great example of that, right? Like you, you take a thing that really happened and you, you try to build it back up into a, into novelistic clarity by getting 
every single little detail that you can. So lots of in-depth interviews and like over and, and over and over again. the door handle. Exactly, exactly. So I ended up, I ended up sitting down with this guy for probably 40 or 50 hours just going over things and, um, and uh, telling stories over and over again. And then, and then when we realized that we couldn't really do it as a straight story because, you know, we didn't want him to be identified, we ended up basically fictionalizing it uh, and creating this character, Huey Carmichael, who... Um, and but it's a it's a very uh faithful sort of representation of what what uh being a high level drug dealer is like and it was i mean it's it's been a blast i've really enjoyed doing it i, I love the format i think it really works it's actually you know the from a writing perspective it it comes off as as faster than like the the writing I usually do it's it kind of like zooms along in a way that my normal prose doesn't so um it's been really cool and he's been really fun to work with too he's he's got a very uh, unique voice and that's that that has been a fun challenge too trying to capture that so the story that what happens is you pay subscription to subscribe to Matt's work uh the first work on through Substack is this serial novel and each week a chapter is delivered to your inbox um, and at the moment the price is five bucks a month or forty dollars a year um, which is quite a cool model for you I think because it allows you to do some work that uh, would otherwise be difficult to find a home for is that a, Definitely. Is that a fair assessment yeah yeah I mean I there's a lot of stuff that I'd love to experiment with but there's you know it's it, it, there's not a whole lot of I mean, the formats for journalism are there's a lot of them there's a lot of things you can do nowadays you can do a podcast you can do this or that um, but there are, there are certain things that just don't fit in any particular uh, box and this this is this is the kind of thing that I've always sort of wanted to do is is just kind of tell a really interesting story that doesn't have particular news value necessarily it's just like um you know it's just a interesting gritty thing you the, know? the world would be lesser for not knowing this man's tale yeah it's just it's just interesting it's like watching the you know watching the wire which is a series i really loved you know it's like um you know it's based upon you know that that series was based upon probably a similar experience of interviewing homicide cops and and, dr and drug enforcement cops and you know some dealers too who were based on real people, um, but they it's not and and what he what he does with that is he gives you a portrait of like how cities work how how you know kind of the some of the dumb incentives that make law enforcement not work you know and, and and that whole thing there's no headline like you couldn't you couldn't go to a newspaper and say i want to tell a story about how about why policing is stupid and and doesn't work you, you, you need to tell this sort of epic tale with all these different characters in order for people to fully see it and um you know this this is a way to do that for me and, and to experiment with some other formats right this is not just a, like a story about the business secrets of drug dealing in the sense that like uh, neil strauss's the game was like how to get a girlfriend mm -hmm. this is this is kind of a, a wider story that touches on multiple things including 
what it's like to be black in America. Right, yeah. What it's like to be the subject of police attention when you're black in America. What it's like to be um, an independent uh, businessman in an industry that is becoming quickly corporatized. Yeah, no, that that whole aspect is is hilarious. I mean, well, it's not hilarious. It's it's terrible and, and interesting at the same time because, you know, my guy thinks of himself as a, as an entrepreneur, and he is. He's sort of a you know he's a, he's a CEO of a of a fairly successful company, and um. And what's happening with the legalization movement is that there, there are all these people who have nothing to do with marijuana who, uh, or drugs at all who just want to take over the business through brute force and, and financing power. And so you're seeing the, the marriage of like private equity firms and, uh, and hedge funds are f- flooding into states like Ohio and California and Colorado. And they're doing a couple of things. Number one, they're buying up all the farms, uh, and the second thing is they're they're pouring money into lobbying to uh, change the rules, like to do things like prevent felons from being licensed dealers, right? Which moves, you know, a lot of the sort of old dealers out of the business, right? So he's telling that story from the inside about. Uh, you know what what's been going on from the dealer's points of view, and that stuff is really interesting because he's he's been involved with that stuff at a pretty high level, and you know and he he also you know on the race front he's he's really interesting uh, thinker. I mean one of the thing, one of the reasons he's never been caught is because um, he had this insight really early in life which is that you have to use embrace racial stereotypes is is the way he puts it like um you know you're going to be profiled so use that use that knowledge against the police you know when you drive a load full of uh drugs make sure that the guy in the front car um looks like a caricature of a black criminal right so they pull that guy over and you and you send the the actual load in car number three he's got lots of insights like that and and they're they're really interesting and um you know and he tells it in a funny way too well, it's a great story. Uh, you're a great writer, and it's on. It covers important subjects, so I'm really pleased. And it's, it's on, on Substack. Substack. Yeah. yeah, and and the address for it is Tyve. Ty- I'm going to cough. <coughs> Excuse me, listeners. <laughs> the 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 address is tyve.substack.com, but it's also one of multiple other URLs because you went on the Joe Rogan podcast to talk about the book mm-hmm. and um and i and i misread it right <laughs> you said the wrong address and we're like fuck and we went and like registered a bunch of domains for it so if you type in any variation of the business secrets of drug dealing it'll uh, get there you'll, right? you'll find you'll find it yeah the business secrets of drug dealing.com i think what happened was at the beginning of the joe rogan show he gave me some kind of like brain enhancing powder that he was taking uh well no i mean it's it's in the show you can see it and uh, i was a little fuzzy uh for the rest (laughs) of the rest of the program so Um, here on the subsec podcast we only offer water which we we procure from the cart on the natural uh (laughs) enhancements uh here so um okay well uh i want to finish on just like your view of the media and its future in america in particular um, Interesting, because that's my next Substack project, probably. So yeah, great. Uh, well, do you want to hint about what that could be? Yeah, I'm gonna. Let's just say I'm gonna. I'm going to do a sequel to a famous book of media criticism. Well, I think with the blessing of the author. So I'll I'll leave it at that. Well, that's really great. And uh, okay, the future of media in America. Um, 
given that little taste test, uh, what's your personal view of um, the direction we're all heading in and our hopes of getting out alive? Well, we're in an incredibly dangerous place right now with the media. Um, and I, I started writing about this earlier this year because I, they assigned me to do a story about Facebook. And uh, the first thing that I learned when I started getting into the tech industry is, is, was about um, the concentration of the distribution power of Facebook and Google. And people don't really think about this because they, they're not media people, right? But you know, back in the old days, in the 70s and early 80s, media companies like the New York Times or the Boston Globe, they, de they derived most of their power from their ability to, dis to distribute. So, you know, it was the trucks, it was the distribution points, it was the delivery kids, it was that whole system. And the newspapers spent, would spend decades building that up, you know, the routes, everything. And they owned it exclusively, and, and that's where they got their authority from. Uh, you couldn't take it away from No one else could do that. Uh, today, you know, that power has been completely undercut. The New York Times makes the content, but it's delivered by, you know, in 73% of cases by one of two outlets. It's either Google or Facebook, and that number is growing uh, every year. The share of people who get their news from one of those two sources is rising at a rate of about two or three percent a year uh, at this point. So those two companies together basically control media distribution in the United States and increasingly the world. And the problem is that within the companies themselves, they've been struggling for years of, uh, about the question of what, what do you do if we want to operate in China or you know some other politically unfree place, uh, and they insist on um, having you know, censorious control over the content. Originally, they struggled with it. Google did run a government-approved search engine for a while, then they decided they couldn't stomach that. Now they're going to go back to it. And what we're seeing, I think, I'm sorry, it's a long-winded answer, but I think what we're seeing right now is the, the first sort of outlines of the company's deciding openly that they're going to cooperate with governments everywhere to regulate media. And we've never really had a, an aggressive media regulator in America, which, which is something that I think people don't realize the, the import of what's going on. You just wrote about this with um, Facebook's cooperation with, what was it called, the Atlantic, the Atlantic Council, Council or something, yeah. with, with Kissinger and a bunch oh, of... Oh, the Atlantic Council is basically buddies. a NATO organization. It's just, it's bored if you look at it. It's just chock full of ex-CIA heads and ex-NSA people and former Homeland Security people and, you know, people like Stephen Hadley, you know, a lot of the sort of Iraq war vets, and Bill Crystal, you know, like that kind of thing. So you're making the case that having these people have power over what Facebook pages, for example, get taken down... Uh, even if those Facebook pages are like obviously objectionable, uh, like Alex Jones, and, and like Alex Jones, uh, then that puts us on a slippery slope that could end up something that looks more like the Russia that you knew in the 1990s and uh, the America that was. Sure. Known. Yeah. No. I mean, the the. I think what people, when they think about the whole slippery slope issue, they think, well, well, that's not a real thing, but we're. It's, they don't understand that, that we're changing one enforcement mechanism for another. We've, it's not like we've, we've had absolute free speech. We've always had regulated speech in this country, except we did it in a very specific um, 
very protected way through the courts. You know, as a reporter, I, I can't get up and just start babbling things about people. I you know, have to know what I'm doing. I can't knowingly, you know, project false things about people or else I'm going to be sued into retirement. That's just the way it works. We all, all legitimate reporters grow up with that fear. Um, but the new system is not that speech violations like libel and defamation, they're not going to be decided by courts and juries. They're going to be decided by some unelected cadre of corporate executives working in concert with God knows who, you know, and that's, that's a completely different ball game when you have to, when you, you don't know where the line is, you don't, you don't know who's going to be deciding on any given day, what, what is and isn't banned behavior. You see sites like Telesur, which is a, you know, a face, uh, South American oppositions, uh, site based in Venezuela, just got taken down by Facebook. Um, that's where all this is going to start. It's going to start with these sort of small, fringy uh, oppositional outlets. They're going to de-rank them uh, on on the search engines. They're going to demonetize content on YouTube, um, and slowly but surely, they're going to homogenize the media landscape. And that it's an incredibly scary thing to me. If Alex Jones wanted to start on Substack tomorrow. <laughs> What the fuck would you do <laughs> if you were the if you were the CEO of Substack? Well, I wouldn't do it because as as the CEO of Substack, you'd be liable, right? I mean, I think the the well, maybe you would. I don't uh, know. We can I'm, read the, yeah, the yeah, fine yeah. friend and talk to our lawyers. But yeah, 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 yeah. You might be right. I mean, the you know, there's the more there's the moral question, and then there's the financial question. You know, morally, I would never hire the guy for a million reasons. Um, but the reason that people haven't done that in the past is because they didn't want to take the hit, you know, in court. Um, the reason that Glenn Beck washed out is because despite having a massive audience, the advertiser boycotts affected the rest of the programming and the network. So, um, you know, Jones, in addition to being, you know, an insult to people legitimate reporters who really do worry about getting things right like we we live in fear of that line in the sand the you know defamation line uh you know he doesn't and and that's bad but um no i i see jones as somebody who who should have been reckoned with a long time ago by the courts Uh, my issue is with this idea that here's how we're going to get rid of them. We're going to take them off all the platforms, right? And that's going to be a decision that's made, you know, by people who who could make the same decision about me. Shadowy figures behind closed doors. Right, yeah. And, and, and I think people don't, they don't think about the implications of that because Ameri- Americans have just never had to live through something like that, so they don't know how, how twisted that could be. <laughs> Do you see any obvious way around this? Well, I, I think the, the the duopolistic power of the companies is a problem, so breaking them up would probably be a good thing. Um, the The fact that they have such a a singular choking point on on information is uh, is a huge pro, a huge problem. So, if you had a number of different companies that were providing the same service, you wouldn't have the ability to con- you know one person wouldn't have the ability to control information the way they do now. So that's one thing. The other thing is. You know, there are a lot of tort reform type laws out there that have made it harder for people to sue uh, media violators, you know, people who, who commit defamation. 
um, got to go go after some of those laws and turn turn some of those over. I think. I mean, I as a, as a reporter, it's kind of yeah, wow. blasphemy <laughs> to for me to say that. Um, but in some cases, it's gotten to the point where you know it, it's just too hard to get people who are even who even knowingly are doing doing the wrong thing. I mean, the standard is deliberately high. You know, the the original court case in 1964, they they said it so that. You had to prove that the that the the reporter knowingly and deliberately um, put out something false and defamatory about people, and that's a that's a really high standard. Um, uh, but um, it's uh, people are getting away with even even more than that now, which isn't a good thing, either. I'd also like to throw in a pitch for what Substack is trying to do here. Um, and it doesn't have to be Substack, but the idea of changing the rules of the game so that media is monetized not through advertising, which is a game oh. completely dominated by Facebook and Google and forever will be unless right. something totally weird happens, to uh, a game where readers can support writers directly, uh, which is one of the reasons we're so happy to have you uh, kind of using Substack. And we want to uh, make that more of a mass and accepted thing. Well, no, I I think without without question, the 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 future of media, if there's if there's going to be a thriving independent media in the future, it's going to have to be a model like this, because the you know the, the things that are the biggest threat to journalistic freedom, to good reporting, to creativity, really of any kind. Um, it's either government interference or it's uh, you know it's corporate control, right? And um, what's happening to a lot of people in the reporting sphere right now is that if you don't fit into uh, the culture of, of a giant organization, if you don't share their views on things, you're 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 not going to get to have a voice anywhere. So if people want to get sort of the unvarnished truth about things they're going to have to probably directly pay for it in a, in a subscriber based model i mean I, I i don't really see any way around that because the um you know even even the ad, advertiser based model of the past that we had you know with tv and um uh, tv especially uh it doesn't it doesn't really work anymore because the companies like google and facebook have such a monopoly on advertising um, that media companies uh, can't compete. Uh, so the, the, all of the advertising dollars are being siphoned off by platforms, not by media companies. And so they're not investing in reporting. They're investing in just getting bigger, you know. So I, I think in order to fight back, you know, to fight these two huge behemoths, people need to start sort of putting their money in a different place and you know that that that's why the model that you've come up with makes so, so much sense and i thought it w i was attracted to it initially great well, i think that's a pretty nice note to end on thanks very yeah, much for no, taking this time thank, thank you hamish all right that was another episode of the substack podcast if you liked it please share with a friend it helps us a lot. A lot of people are sharing it already. It's awesome. Uh, shout out to Radio Public, the podcast app, for featuring us. We appreciate that. Um, stick around next week. we got another great guest talking about how to make it as an independent writer. See you then.